So this evening I'd like to offer some teachings on impermanence and give you two views of impermanence. One is a macro view, the immense infinity of impermanence, and then the micro view, the moment-to-moment experience of impermanence. So these will be woven together as I offer. So always these Dhamma teachings become alive to me and more integrated in actual experience when they're expressed in nature. And so when I was in my 20s, I was really inspired by the book uh, by Hermann Hesse, uh, Siddhartha. How many of you have read that? Many, yeah, if not all. And um, I really have forgotten the whole story. People say, oh, that person in Siddhartha you were named after, but that's not true. There was a Kamala (laughs) in that story. So what is vivid in my recall of that story about Siddhartha is a time when he was a bodhisattva before he became a Buddha and was sitting next to a river in the quiet stillness of his own mind and body. And so there was this ability for uh, that bodhisattva to be listening just listening, just hearing, taking in at every sense door the experiences of change in, uh, in life, all around him, in nature. So sitting next to the river, there was this constant flow of the changing sounds coming from the river. Like our lives, constantly changing this river of life, through us and around us. And it gave the image to me at that very first time of really getting it so deeply, the image of cannot stop the river. It has its own conditions. And these are also changing conditions, coming together, changing, disappearing, the flowing onness of life. That was the first time it ever occurred to me at that time in my 20s. And I remember the image in that story. It brings kind of present time life to me. Just when we are all sitting or I'm sitting also in retreat or every day at home, just sitting and listening or experiencing the flowing onness of life at all the sense doors. So it has a really deep meaning for me in just this fluxing, changing of this river of life that we're living through and that's happening for us here as we practice in this simplicity and the kind of schedule we have and the inclining the everyday life here to more and more simplicity. So we're trying to um, help you, to support you to see more deeply into life, into the stillness of the body and mind, and the way that the mind can be seen much more clearly in this simplicity and stillness. So we're doing our best to be mindfully aware and present with all that occurs here, 
all of the what is known at the five physical sense doors and what is known through the sense door of the mind. The, all the wholesome, beautiful, the unwholesome and difficult mind states that arise to know the fluxing and changing of even all of that. So a few years ago, I fulfilled a long-time aspiration to walk the Camino de Santiago. How many have walked here? Yeah, okay, great. A couple, three of us, four of us. Um, Actually, uh, I'm going to speak about the first time I walked um, the Camino was from Leon to Santiago, and the second time was from Burgos to Santiago. So first time was 200 miles, and the second time was 300 miles. I didn't ever, haven't yet reached going the full length of it um, from one uh, beginning place to another, which is about 900 miles, they say. So we took the route called um, the Camino Frances, and it originates from France. That's what they call why they call it that. And we took that route because it followed some natural creeks and followed some uh, forests. And I have um, a sensitivity to the sun, so I wanted to uh, go through a lot of trees and have some shade time. So we took that route. It followed a lot of natural flowing creeks and rivers, went across bridges and um, through a lot of pasture land also. So it was important for me to do that Camino, to walk that, to have that voyage in an outer way and in an inner way. I wanted to really experience uh, a more natural pace, uh, not, you know, always taking planes and cars and going from here to another place, so fast pace of this life. And so um, just doing a long walk and, and also going through a difficult time of my life when there was difficult transitions, transitions. So it was helpful for me to have this inner journey as well. I wanted to be immersed in natural environment um, this Camino is about a, a thousand-year-old pilgrimage, uh, not just for Catholics, although I was raised Catholic, but it's a pilgrimage for people of many walks of life, and mostly it's an inner pilgrimage, uh, as I learned from many of those I met along the way. So it was also an aspiration to become more and more aware moment-to-moment of the intimate simplicity of just hearing, of just smelling, of just tasting, of just sensing the different sensations of the body and the natural rhythm of the heart and the body. Um, Life as a Dhamma teacher, some people think we're floating on a cloud, but it isn't so. (laughs) There are so many details to take care of. So we really have to take time, sometimes for our own inner work. So I felt this time was a time of having some deep respect for this body and this mind. It's always kind of planning and doing things for others in a way, and 
not, um, you know, the dedicated time that I seem to need just to be with these very uh, functional, kind of foundational experiences of being human. So it was in deep respect for that also. So there was a need to reestablish a deeper healing connection with my heart and with the mind and body to to be in sync with natural rhythms. Felt I had lost that connection and to have a, a place to land the attention that wasn't always in the thinking process, but it could be in the direct experiential understanding of basic things like what are the experience of earth element, of air element, of um, fire element, of water element. What are the deep natural experiences of those things in life? Not just learning about them and having a a kind of a, a theoretical understanding of them, but to really in in reverence to actually my own role as a Dhamma teacher, to not just understand theoretically and be able to impart that theoretically, but to be able to sense it and know it from a deep place of experience. That is a very um, respectful place I hold in, in my own role. So that's part of what we're doing here, you know, being with the outer natural uh, experiences and the inner natural experiences of our life. So after, actually after I did that walk, those, the two walks, one year after another, I had learned about forest bathing. How many of you know that term, forest bathing? A lot of us now. It's beautiful uh, understanding about it. It's, it has its roots in different cultures, but in the Japanese culture, this f- is forest therapy, forest bathing, and it's called Shinrin-yoku. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Somebody correct me later if you know the correct pronunciation. This is the medicine and healing of simply being in a forest. And its aim is to slow down so that your inner rhythm becomes in sync with the outer rhythm and to become immersed in a natural environment like we are here. We have this kind of, even though there's lots of open space, there's lots of trees around too and There's also greenery, you know, the the little forests of the the grass that we walk through. We're becoming aware intentionally and sometimes unintentionally of that tuning in to an inner, more natural rhythm. It clears out the clutter of the mind if you can just be with hearing, sensing, smelling, just stepping feeling the earth beneath our feet, simple things like that. So a lot of medical research research has been done in Japan also. Recently I've heard in South Korea, and they found that there are reductions in stress hormones and much more, even healing of cancer. So 
my friend and I walked through um, this uh, Camino Frances in an, at a natural pace, and we just took whatever um, path we could and knew that it would meet our energy level of the day. So we crossed rivers, we walked amongst trees in the sun and in the rain, very simple villages, just simply being. It was so refreshing. We walked sometimes from 11 miles to 19 or 20 miles a day. It was really amazing. Never thought I could do that, but I learned that I could. So river paths, sounds of rushing water, a few moments when there would be the stark freshness and the deep resting of the mind because there could be, in many moments, just hearing. Ripples of whatever the water was flowing through slowly or quickly or crashing through. There was uh, different rhythms of water sounds, but I didn't have to investigate anything like what they were or where they were coming from. It could just be hearing, just hearing. That's why they say, if you just follow the instructions, there can be very, very deep healing uh, in in the Dhamma. And just doing Vipassana, Satipatthana Vipassana. So the sounds of water moving over rocks and boulders, rustling sounds, strong sounds, just hearing everything rushing by, Um, inculcating deeply without trying to understand anything, this understanding of it's all rushing through. There's nothing to hold on to whatsoever. Just like the river of life, so is this physical river in this time and space. Just rushing through. Just moving through. Those give deep understandings to us because we're not thinking about it. Sometimes, you know, it's so good to impart the Dharma, but it also can be so complex to, to take all those words and figure them out when we're just, you know, hearing, sitting, feeling, etc. So sometimes this hearing is interwoven with moments of just seeing, So just kind of giving you the moment-to-moment view, the shifting colors of light, shapes, and forms, and when the mind isn't making anything out of them, not developing any kind of concept of what it is, but it can just be this soft gaze, receptive seeing, just seeing, not even identifying, oh, that's a cloud, but it may know, cloud, that's okay, a moment of knowing going by, but just tuning in to the ear door and to the eye door, just hearing, just seeing, just noticing the flux within it all, also that. So we walked mostly in silence, and sometimes the scent of nature would strike the mind, would be the predominant experience momentarily. When it would rain, there would be a scent of uh, the soil that was damp or the leaves that were wet. 
and there would be scents of animals in pasture, the scent of animals when we pass through pasture land. So it would just be smelling. And I keep repeating that because I'm hoping that that's what you can do also. You can just be with that utter simplicity. And uh, I hear that one of the teachers is going to give a teaching on the Bahia Sutta which says, just that, you know, if you want to be free in the quickest way possible, <laughs> just be with that simplicity. Just hearing, just seeing, just sensing, over and over again. So the gentle raindrops would fall on the face and physical sensations of varying degrees of coolness would be there, of temperature, coolness, and the flowing onness of water element also would be there. There would sometimes be the warmth of sunshine vividly appearing and when closely taken in, vividly changing, vividly disappearing. Sensations of footsteps pressing onto the soft earth beneath the feet, just stepping feeling the earth element, softness, hardness, gentleness, tickling, bumpy, smoothness, just sensing in that moment, simply being aware of that. It's so simple and so refreshing, and that's the, um, that's the guidance just to go there but we're so complex, we make it into something much more than that. So we're learning how to be simple, um, to touch base with the rhythm of the pulsing heartbeat or the pulsing whatever sensations there are, vibrations in the body, the breath, the chest, the abdomen arising and falling, so simple, so refreshing. It's so restful. It's hard to believe, so restful. When I learned, um, when I first learned from Manindraji, when I was having uh, parenthood of three children, single parenthood, he showed me in the hall how to walk from one place to another when I went from the bedrooms to the living room and into the kitchen, etc. And he stood beside me as he taught me walking practice. And he said, in this hall, when you, every time you walk, just let it be, just stepping, just stepping, and your mind will be refreshed enough to face the children whenever I had to do something or whenever life got really complicated. So... I actually just followed those instructions and then it it really could happen that the mind would be at rest in those moments. When there was a training to just, when stepping, just step. When feeling, just feel. When seeing, just see. So in time, you know, in all the time that I just followed those instructions, The mind can go into complex ways that need to figure things out, but when it didn't need to figure it out, it just did that simple stuff. 
So, um, you know, the, the, the mind can do that. So inwardly, there's also awareness of what's going on. Maybe it's um, aversive mind. Maybe it's appreciative mind. Maybe it's calm contentment. Not so much, you know, the kind of delight of joy, but the calmness of having feeling fulfilled. The mind doesn't have to reach out for something else to fulfill it. That calm contentment, planning. Sometimes getting caught in what is planned, sometimes not. It's all okay, just knowing it. And also awareness and knowing also arising, changing, and passing away. When the mind is very still, it can also see that. Everything flowing along like the river, even the knowing of it, changing, coming and going, the river of life around us and within us. So that helped it to be possible as I walked that Camino for my heart to open to the natural unfolding processes of this transition of my life within this body and mind continuum. What, how was it? You know, not just in the things I had to do in the outer part of my life to be able to navigate that uh, transition of my life. So this river of life appearing, changing, disappearing, moment to moment in what is called me, Kamala, you know, this human being walking through life. So since I can remember, I've had this deep faith that all of these rippling currents of change are momentary teachings. If we just pay attention... We don't have to sit and have a big dharma talk in our minds. It's just paying attention to the simplicity of all of this. So, though this is extremely simple and seemingly mundane, they're planting wholesome seeds of deep understanding. And I just always trusted that. It seemed like when I came to the dharma, At a young age, there was a lot of suffering, so I was really desperate to know, how can this be faced? So I I got the simple, the teachings and its simplicity. Sometimes I couldn't understand the Dharma talks at all. I just did. I followed, uh, like one of my teachers said, is the reason why you made some, you know, inroads into the Dharma is because you followed instructions. It was simple. You know, the instructions are really simple. So I want to um, read something from Upasika Ki, uh, who wrote some beautiful books. One of them was called Pure and Simple, and one, An Unentangled Knowing. And she was one of the foremost teachers of Dhamma in Thailand who started a a monastery for women. She lived from 1901 to 1979. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch on to as having any essence 
Everything disbands and disappears. New fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They keep on flowing and they seem to involve many issues. But actually there aren't many issues. There's only arising, changing, and passing away. It is because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seems to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's only just this, arising, changing, and passing away, like a rippling current of water, where the rippling isn't a thing at all. If you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, change, and pass away. The past has passed away. The future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the future arising and passing away right before your eyes and don't hold on. When you see arising, changing, and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let it go, that's when you gain release. So this understanding comes only in the present moment. It doesn't come in the past by thinking or remembering how it happened before in your practice or in anybody else's practice. And it doesn't happen in the future because we want it to happen. It only can be known in this very present moment. That's why everything is geared towards knowing what's going on in this present moment. When um, I was just remembering um, Upandita, and when we had to report to him, it was, we had to describe how the present moment arose in all those five experiences of the five physical sense doors or the mind, whichever was the most clear to us that we could hand um, repeat our um, practice about. So we had to find the clearest moment and describe it. And that's what we had to take five minutes to do. So we could leave five minutes to be answered. And in those five minutes, we had to really describe how, what arose, how it arose, how it changed, and how it passed away, if we saw any of that. That was all we had to express. And in those moments, the teacher would know where your practice stood. So in recent times, um, you know, though I understood, un- deeply understand that how those moment-to-moment experiences can change one's view of life and oneself, I started to tune into the level of the infinity and immensity of impermanence also as a way to give me some sense of spiritual urgency in my life, in my practice. So the process of us as human beings in this endless repeating cycle of birth and life and death and rebirth again and again and again. Or you can think of it if it's easier for you, um, if there's no you know, taking in of the understanding of rebirth, which is fine. 
we can think of it in terms of just one life, of being born, going through infancy, adolescence, adulthood, elder years, the dying process, and death. You know, just that, when we think of that, when we reflect on our life in that way, we can see samsara. This is called samsara. One definition of samsara is perpetually wandering through states of existence. So we can see that in our lives. You know, normally when we yogis come to sit, it's very natural for us to have a life review. It's reviewing all the stages of existence in this very life, how things have changed, how we've come to grow and what things have stopped us and how we've gone through difficulties and through joys and sorrows. It's important to investigate that on a moment-to-moment level, actually. So we see this endless cycle of eternally becoming birth, life, changes, death, rebirth, an infinite, never-ending, immense cycle. So I've been reflecting in the last years, how long has this been flowing and fluctuating on and on and on? So just being truthful about my own experience, like really the question is how long has this been going on? How many lifetimes has this you know, mind and body continuum taken up to understand more and more thoroughly since time immemorial? This infinite immensity of impermanence, joys and sorrows, pains and pleasures. And finally it gets to be like, you know, um, chewing on an old bone that doesn't have anything more to chew on. It's just under this, except this understanding of the immensity and infinity of impermanence. So realizing this has given me an increased sense of spiritual urgency, uh, this thing called samvega that I spoke about in faith, in my talk about faith, a sense of urgency to escape the rounds of wandering through this endless cycle. Just in the day, we can see that. You know, in, in a lifetime we can see that through different cycling in and out of different experiences of life and cycling in and out of experiences here on retreat. We can see that. We need to be able to do it with this balanced clarity and confidence. So we're always, as teachers, watching out for that with you. Do you have the balance to get through this period of time? Enough confidence to do it. So allowing one to proceed in a balanced way through our practice, it said, without lapsing into despair. So if despair comes, how to get through that? So that there is that quiet aspiration to have this sense of urgency, not out of aversion or not out of... um, you know, attachment to how we think it should be, but because we see with compassion and we see with wisdom. So when I was younger, I listened to the words of the Buddha and they were beyond my capacity to understand. A lot of times the teacher would say, in time you'll understand that, so don't try to understand everything. 
just do your practice. And what we see in, in the practice, as I've practiced with a lot of my own monastic teachers and, and in Burma, is that those who take in the practice and do it in the simple way that it's offered, they um, get through all these cycles much more easily, not trying to over overlap any idea of even spiritual understanding, but just do it one moment at a time. So if you said if if you said to the teacher about your practice that you're doing well and you experience this or that, they would they would say, but how? In your moment to moment experience, what how did that come about? So I was always reassured that if I kept practicing, there would be understanding, experiential understanding. So I'm going to read um, some, something from the ancient suttas, words of the Buddha that give us a sense of what is beyond the concept of time, what is beyond our understanding sometimes in this infinity of the cycle of birth, life, and death. It's helpful to to have the macro view as well. And um, the Buddha talked about these uh, impermanence so many times in his teachings that I think it's really important to use the words of the Buddha and handing down to you um, about impermanence, not just micro level but macro level. How the cycles of change on the micro are constantly happening. So, um, these are the words of the Buddha. A Brahmin in India asked the Buddha how many eons have elapsed and gone by in terms of wandering in this cycle of samsara. Is it possible to give a simile? And before I read the Buddha's answers, I want to explain what an eon is in in Buddhist um, understanding, cosmology. An eon is an immeasurably long time. (laughs) In Buddhist cosmology, an an eon is, I'm just imparting to you what I've read, 4.32 billion years. That's an eon in Buddhist cosmology. And the earth is 4.5 billion years old. So it's almost one cycle, you know, of a planet, of this earth planet. In astronomy, one eon is 100,000 million years. So keep this in mind when the Buddha gives his answer. So again from the suttas, and this is from the Samyutta Nikaya, from the Book of Causation, This was translated into English by Bhikkhu Bodhi. So Brahman asked the Buddha, how many eons have elapsed and gone by in terms of wandering in this cycle of samsara? Is it possible to give a simile? And so the Buddha answered, it is possible, Brahman. Consider the grains of sand between the point where the river Ganges originates and the point where it enters the great ocean. Brahman, the eons that have elapsed and gone by, are even more numerous than that. It is not easy to count them, 
and say there are so many eons or so many hundreds or so many thousands or hundreds of thousands of eons. For what reason? Because, Brahman, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. So now, when I read this last line, it's almost as if it's saying to me, isn't it time enough to be liberated from them? Like it's saying, what are you waiting for? So on another occasion, this is another sutta, uh, while dwelling in Savati, the Blessed One said to bhikkhus, those who were practicing like us, this samsara is is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving. Whenever you see anyone in misfortune, in misery, you can conclude we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. Whenever you see anyone happy and fortunate, you can conclude we too have experienced the same thing in this long course. For what reason? Because, bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to be liberated from them. And lastly, at Savati, bhikkhus, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance, fettered by craving. What do you think, bhikkhus, which is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable, What is more, this or the water in the four great oceans? And the bhikkhus responded, As we understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, the stream of tears that we have shed as we roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable, separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water in the four great oceans. And the Blessed One responded, Bhikkhus, it is good that you understand the Dhamma in this way. So the fluctuations of even just one life through stages of infancy, childhood, the teen years, early, later adulthood, aging, going through health and sickness and dying and death, all the happiness and sorrow, all the gain and loss, And all the experiences we get caught in and feel in, in between, all this slips through our fingers like water from the river of life. And of course, our tears, like the river of life, also fall in grieving of all the letting go, of all the hardships. This is also a truth. So when I was in my 20s, the end of life The end of the river was not something I thought about. It was more about basic survival, raising children, having a household, etc. So even so, I did have a lot of interest and a beginning sense of 
What's this life all about anyway? What's my purpose here? And so this sense of urgency that I really didn't understand in the beginning became more and more clear to me. And now at this age, like many of us in this room, the river of life is more behind us than ahead of us. And so there's a lot of interest in going more deeply, letting go more and more of life. So there's this natural, organic arising of a reflection on aging and death and the preciousness of human birth equally as important. Not just kind of, maybe we think of death and sickness as kind in a morbid way, but not so. It's about the preciousness of life. You know, we hold in equal respect and regard. So I delve into the Dhamma this way more and keeping the practice of impermanence in the foreground. So not uh, too many years ago, I did a personal retreat uh, in Lumbini, um, the birthplace of the Buddha, with one of my teachers, uh, Vivekananda. And usually there's no reading material during that time. And, but I did bring along some words of advice that I wanted to read every morning to help me just stay with this preciousness of life and do everything I could to stay with my practice no matter what happened, no matter what part of the river went, went by through my heart. So <clears throat> I always um, feel the words of Dilgo Kimse Rinpoche from the Tibetan tradition just so pierce, pierce my heart a lot. Um, I didn't practice in the Tibetan tradition, but there are many great Tibetan teachers that I admire and have come across. And Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche was one of them. So I brought some quotes from him. And it, together, it, these quotes bring that sense of spiritual urgency and also the recognition of the preciousness of my human life and really using my life to realize the Dhamma. Along the way also to, you know, have relational understanding so that there's kindness and compassion as well. But also realizing the Dhamma is very big for me. So every day I would read this. And <clears throat> these are the words from His Holiness, Adilgo Kinsey Rinpoche. And they, they're so... Um, they're so sacred that I can't begin to, you know, hold them in the way that he held them. So I hope that I'm just channeling the purity of that heart to you. So quoting, Ask yourself how many of the billions of inhabitants of this planet have any idea of how rare it is to have been born as a human being. How many of those who understand the rarity of human birth ever think of using that chance to practice the Dharma? How many of those who think of practice actually do? How many of those who start continue? How many of those who continue attain ultimate realization? Indeed, those who attain ultimate realization compared to those who do not are as few as the stars you can see at daybreak. 
as long as you fail to recognize the true value of your life of human existence, you will just fritter your life away in futile activity and distraction. When life comes all too soon to its inevitable end, you will have achieved, you will not have achieved anything worthwhile at all. But once you real, really see the unique opportunity that human life can bring, you will definitely direct all your energy into reaping its true worth by putting the Dharma into practice. So at other times I would read the, this quote from Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche. Just as every single thing is always moving inexorably closer to its ultimate dissolution, so also your own life, like a burning butter lamp, will soon be consumed. It would be foolish to think you can first finish your work and retire to spend the later stages of life practicing the Dharma. Can you be certain that you will live that long? Does death not strike the young as well as the old? No matter what you're doing, therefore, remember death and keep your mind focused on the Dharma. So this um, anicca is so important to understand and the preciousness of our holy life along with that. The infinity and the immeasurable impermanence of it, impermanence of it, how long has this been going on and isn't it time to let go? So the subtleties of anicca on a moment-to-moment include seeing the arising, the becoming different, the changing, the becoming otherwise, the disappearing, never staying the same, subject to change, the disappearance, the dissolving, the flowing onness. So it's like this beginningless, endless river emerging from innumerable conditions that are also fluxing, changing, moving, evaporating in different forms around us as elements and within us also as elements. The rivers of our life outwardly and inwardly So we're fortunate to be here, surrounded in this beautiful place where it gives us a balance. The beauty around us gives us a balance to see what's hard within us to open to sometimes. To get the balance sometimes, we need to open our eyes and just take in the beauty of nature. Or sometimes we take in the impermanence of it. It can be so scary too. I remember the time when impermanence really hit the mind and heart so deeply. I was just doing some practice in the early time of my um, life. I think I was in my 30s. I was practicing on Maui. Manindraji came to um, came to guide us all and I was just doing simple walking practice, going simply back and forth on a gravel road and um, really being continuous, you know, having that continuity of mindfulness getting stronger and stronger. And so uh, just one time, just, just 
kind of slowed down, stopped, and slowly turned and saw some leaves rustling. It was simple. And then um, the hibiscus flower of that big, it was a tall hibiscus bush, it just fell. And in that moment, the deep understanding of impermanence and death struck my heart and it, it brought a lot of fear to my heart. It was like there was nothing to land on. You know, everything was just moving and changing and the fluxing of it was seen more than the solidity of anything. So that part just happened, you know, in that simplicity of doing the practice. I hadn't been doing it that long, maybe 10 years. So it was so, um, it struck my heart in such a way that I could never go back to see anything solid. It, that moment of just seeing the insolidity, it wasn't like I could um, write a book about it, but how it struck me changed my life. It wasn't like, it was an aha moment, but there was more to know. There was more to break through in life. So understanding it so profoundly, um, what begins to be a deep understanding is can't hold on because it's changing and fluxing all the time. Can't hold on to anything. There's nothing to hold on to. Everything's moving all the time. But even though that could be an initial profound shock to my system, that had to be known over and over and over again. That just didn't do the trick of freeing the mind. You know, more understandings in that regard had to come. That we gradually begin to let go of our tight-fisted hold on how we think life should be. And bit by bit, we learn through taking in that simple impermanence. It helps the, the tight-fisted hand to open up. And just let the water flow through, knowing what to do more and more, um, with more and more kindness, more and more compassion, sometimes fierce compassion has to be used. So more and more alignment with the truth, the teaching of impermanence and the way to understand it experientially is something the Buddha pointed to as highly important in life because comes with it the possibility of understanding life in a way that brings more ease and freedom. The Buddha would say, though with a faithful heart one takes refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, or with a faithful heart one observes the guidelines of morality, sila, or one develops a mindful of metta, by far more meritorious it is to cultivate the perception of impermanence, even if only for a moment. So that moment, just that moment of impermanence, gave like such a deep view of life. So this practice of vipassana is aimed towards that experiential understanding and others that come from that. 
Vipassana means seeing and understand various experiences in profound ways. The various ways of seeing deeply, experiencing profoundly what happens in the body-mind continuum of the fluctuating nature of all of life. Seeing this intimate view, that pixelated view, moment to moment not by forcing the mind to go there, but by relaxing back and letting all of this to be known. Sometimes it's moment to moment, sometimes it's wider view, but not trying to see it. What comes to be seen by just relaxing into it is this incessant mind-boggling morphing and appearing, dissolving of formations, this transient nature that this is anicca. This is one of the universal characteristics of all of life. So it's transformative because it brings about the insight into the fact of dukkha, the fact of that this transitory nature of life brings about the fact that we can't hold on to anything. This dukkha nature, the first noble truth, that there is the truth of dukkha. There's no ultimate or lasting permanent satisfaction in anything or any combination of things because all conditions, every part of those conditions are also impermanent. This is dukkha. Sometimes we understand dukkha as suffering and all the ways of suffering, But when there is insight into dukkha, it's understood as a wisdom. So there's a wisdom of impermanence, anicca, and there's also the wisdom of dukkha when it's understood. So one characteristic of dukkha is the oppression by the incessant origination and dissolution of every moment. So that is like it brings in and it integrates anicca there. It's not to say that there's no happiness in the world. Of course there's happiness and the Buddha never dismissed that but just said it's precious. It's, it's arising and passing away with everything. Enjoy while it's there but also know that it leaves. You'll enjoy it more. You know, if you see that deeply into life, the preciousness of the fleeting nature of life. Like Thich Nhat Hanh says, you are here, I am here, we both will die. Now in this moment, we have this time together. This is contentment and joy. So from this understanding of anicca, the understanding of dukkha becomes clear. And from that understanding of anicca also becomes clear the understanding of anatta, the not-self characteristic. There's no solidity in any part of life that can be experientially known. Not in the body, not in the mind, not in anything outwardly or inwardly, not in any combination of any of that. There's no solidity of a self anywhere. We have to call this a self on the relative level. 
and respect it with great respect on the relational relative level we need to understand that there is a sense of self but underneath this sense of self which is a truth on this relative level there is a sense of self when we look at the parts of what is called self those parts are the five aggregates of clinging then uh, it's seen more directly that everything is ephemeral there it's moving, it's impermanent there's no solidity there's nothing you can hold on to even there so as Manindra would say if you went to him with you know everything's going even the sense of self where, where is that? can't find it can't land anywhere he would just say let go let go let go that would all that would be in his response you can't go you can't hold on to any concept one of my colleagues a psychologist um, practiced with Manindra and said the whole of our Dharma lives is to live with loss we live in this grieving process of loss all the time letting go all the time this is our dharma so listening to the flow of the river of change over and over through the years of daily life deepening that understanding in intensive practice here and bringing that back to daily life so we're not holding on to how things should be but we know how things are so that we can have an intelligent response to life maybe more compassion, more wisdom so deepening that understanding here helps us to relax more into it as it becomes more and more knowable those places become reachable so from the Sutta the Buddha would say, let there be nothing behind you. Leave the future to one side and grasp not what remains in the middle. The present moment is the only time, the only place, if you can call it time and place, where transformation, deep transformation, deep liberation can take place. So finally, this flowing onness of our lives teaches us to not resist the truth. We start to live from a place of richer meaning. We use our life skillfully. We turn more and more towards liberating the mind and heart. We realize the preciousness of life and use our life well. As Suzuki Roshi says, true renunciation is not giving up things of this world, but knowing that they go away. So I'd like to um, end with this beautiful quote by Mr. Goenka, Goenka G. He talks on the relative level here about it, connects it with the ultimate level. Real wisdom is recognizing and accepting that every experience is impermanent. With this insight, you will not be overwhelmed by the ups and downs. 
and when you're able to maintain inner balance, you can choose to act in ways that create happiness for yourself and others. Living each moment happily with an equanimous mind, you will surely progress forward to the ultimate goal of liberation from all suffering. Then um, I hope I can find that also from a nun. Mm, yes. This is from Tejitsu, a Buddhist nun and abbess of a 16th century nunnery in Japan. And um, She refers to herself in this as she, as if, you know, leaving out the word I. She saw that all phenomena arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this itself arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on, stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning, and she opened the clenched fist of her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So let's sit for a moment. Let the words dissolve. Thank you for your kind attention. Time for walking and meet you back here um, at nine. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, 